Chapter 7 of The First Men in the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. Chapter 7 Sunrise on the Moon. As we saw at first, it was the wildest and most desolate of scenes. We were in an enormous amphitheatre, a vast circular plain, the floor of the giant crater. Its cliff-like walls closed us in on every side. From the westward the light of the unseen sun fell upon them, reaching to the very foot of the cliff, and showed a disordered escarpment of drab and grayish rock, lined here and there with banks and crevices of snow. This was perhaps a dozen miles away, but at first no intervening atmosphere diminished in the slightest the minutely detailed brilliancy with which these things glared at us. They stood out clear and dazzling against a background of starry blackness that seemed to our earthly eyes rather a gloriously spangled velvet curtain than the spaciousness of the sky. The eastward cliff was at first merely a starless salvage to the starry dome, no rosy flush, no creeping pallor, announced the commencing day. Only the corona, the zodiacal light, a huge cone-shaped luminous haze pointing up towards the splendor of the morning star, warned us of the imminent nearness of the sun. Whatever light was about us was reflected by the westward cliffs. It showed a huge undulating plain, cold and gray a gray that deepened eastward into the absolute raven darkness of the cliff shadow. Innumerable rounded gray summits, ghostly hummocks, billows of snowy substance, stretching crest beyond crest into the remote obscurity, gave us our first inkling of the distance of the crater wall. These hummocks looked like snow. At the time I thought they were snow, but they were not. They were mounds and masses of frozen air. So it was at first, and then, sudden, swift, and amazing, came the lunar day. The sunlight had crept down the cliff. It touched the drifted masses at its base, and incontinently came striding with seven-leagued boots towards us. The distant cliff seemed to shift and quiver, and at the touch of the dawn a reek of gray vapor poured upward from the crater floor, whirls and puffs and drifting wraiths of gray thicker and broader and denser, until at last the whole westward plain was steaming like a wet handkerchief held before the fire, and the westward cliffs were no more than refracted glare beyond. "'It is air,' said Cavour. "'It must be air, or it would not rise like this, at the mere touch of a sunbeam, and at this pace—' He peered upwards. "'Look!' he said. "'What?' I asked. In the sky, already, on the blackness, a little touch of blue, see? The stars seem larger, and the little ones and all those dim nebulosities we saw in empty space, they are hidden. Swiftly, steadily, the day approached us. Gray summit after gray summit was overtaken by the blaze, and turned to a smoking white intensity. At last there was nothing to the west of us but a bank of surging fog, the tumultuous advance and ascent of cloudy haze. The distant cliff had receded farther and farther, had loomed, 
and changed through the whirl, and foundered and vanished at last in its confusion. Nearer came that steaming advance, nearer and nearer, coming as fast as the shadow of a cloud before the southwest wind. About us rose a thin anticipatory haze. Cavor gripped my arm. What? I said. Look! The sunrise! The sun! He turned me about, and pointed to the brow of the eastward cliff, looming above the haze about us, scarce lighter than the darkness of the sky. But now its line was marked by strange reddish shapes, tongues of vermilion flame that writhed and danced. I fancied it must be spirals of vapour that had caught the light and made this crest of fiery tongues against the sky, but indeed it was the solar prominences I saw, a crown of fire about the sun that is forever hidden from earthly eyes by our atmospheric veil. And then... The sun! Steadily, inevitably, came a brilliant line, came a thin edge of intolerable effulgence that took a circular shape, became a bow, became a blazing scepter, and hurled a shaft of heat at us as though it was a spear. It seemed verily to stab my eyes. I cried aloud, and turned about blinded, groping for my blanket beneath the bale. And with that incandescence came a sound, the first sound that had reached us from without since we left the earth, a hissing and rustling, the stormy trailing of the aerial garment of the advancing day. And with the coming of the sound and the light, the sphere lurched, and blinded and dazzled we staggered helplessly against each other. It lurched again, and the hissing grew louder. I had shut my eyes perforce, I was making clumsy efforts to cover my head with my blanket, and this second lurch sent me helplessly off my feet. I fell against the bale, and opening my eyes had a momentary glimpse of the air just outside our glass. It was running. It was boiling, like snow into which a white-hot rod is thrust. What had been solid air had suddenly, at the touch of the sun, become a paste, a mud, a slushy liquefaction that hissed and bubbled into gas. There came a still more violent whirl of the sphere, and we had clutched one another. In another moment we were spun about again. Round we went, and over, and then I was on all fours. The lunar dawn had hold of us. It meant to show us little men what the moon could do with us. I caught a second glimpse of things without. Puffs of vapor, half-liquid slush, excavated, sliding, falling, sliding. We dropped into darkness. I went down with Cavour's knees in my chest. Then he seemed to fly away from me, and for a moment I lay with all the breath out of my body, staring upward. A toppling crag of the melting stuff had splashed over us, buried us, and now it thinned and boiled off us. I saw the bubbles dancing on the glass above. I heard Cavour exclaiming feebly. Then some huge landslip in the thawing air had caught us, and spluttering expostulation we began to roll down a slope, rolling faster and faster, leaping crevasses and rebounding from banks faster and faster, westward into the white-hot boiling tumult of the lunar day. Clutching at one another, we spun about, pitched this way and that, our bale of packages leaping at us, pounding at us. We collided, we gripped, we were torn asunder, 
our heads met, and the whole universe burst into fiery darts and stars. On the earth we should have smashed one another a dozen times, but on the moon, luckily for us, our weight was only one-sixth of what it is terrestrially, and we fell very mercifully. I recall a sensation of utter sickness, a feeling as if my brain were upside down inside my skull, and then something was at work upon my face. Some thin feelers worried my ears. Then I discovered the brilliance of the landscape around was mitigated by blue spectacles. Cavour bent over me, and I saw his face upside down, his eyes also protected by tinted goggles. His breath came irregularly, and his lip was bleeding from a bruise. "'Better?' he said, wiping the blood with the back of his hand. Everything seemed swaying for a space, but that was simply my giddiness. I perceived that he had closed some of the shutters in the outer sphere to save me from the direct blaze of the sun. I was aware that everything about us was very brilliant. "'Lord!' I gasped. "'But this!' I craned my neck to see. I perceived there was a blinding glare outside, an utter change from the gloomy darkness of our first impressions. "'Have I been insensible long?' I asked. "'I don't know. The chronometer is broken. Some little time. My dear chap, I have been afraid.' I lay for a space, taking this in. I saw his face still bore evidences of emotion. For a while I said nothing. I passed an inquisitive hand over my contusions, and surveyed his face for similar damages. The back of my right hand had suffered most, and was skinless and raw. My forehead was bruised and had bled. He handed me a little measure with some of the restorative—I forget the name of it—he had brought with us. After a time I felt a little better. I began to stretch my limbs carefully. Soon I could talk. "'It wouldn't have done,' I said, as though there had been no interval. "'No, it wouldn't,' he thought, his hands hanging over his knees. He peered through the glass and then stared at me. "'Good Lord!' he said. "'No!' "'What has happened?' I asked after a pause. "'Have we jumped to the tropics?' "'It was as I expected. This air has evaporated, if it is air. At any rate it has evaporated, and the surface of the moon is showing. We are lying on a bank of earthy rock. Here and there bare soil is exposed. A queer sort of soil." It occurred to him that it was unnecessary to explain. He assisted me into a sitting position, and I could see with my own eyes. End of chapter.